Welcome to Recalculating Adventist Life Now. I'm Skip Bell, your host. The focus today is the history and biblical context of the practice of ordination. My guest is Dr. Doris Yankovitz. Dr. Yankovic is field and ministerial secretary and spirit of prophecy coordinator in the South Pacific Division of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the office being in New South Wales in Australia. He holds a Ph.D. degree from Andrews University in historical theology, spent 11 years as professor of historical theology there at that institution, the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary, served during a portion of his journey there as head of the theology and Christian philosophy department. His service has also included pastoral life. His wife, Edita, holds a doctoral degree in religious education, serves the South Pacific Division, and they have uh, two young adult children. Among his writings and research on today's topic is the work which I will recommend to you, listener, The Problem of Ordination, Lessons from Early Christian History. That's a good source for following up this conversation, as well as other things that Dr. Yankovic has contributed. Uh, That will provide a significant contribution to our inquiry. Welcome, Dr. Yankovic. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, Darius... Uh, many, if not most, Christians consider ordination a legitimate right of setting selected members apart for their purpose of pastoral ministry and oversight in the church. It's also assumed generally that the right finds foundations in Scripture, Old and New Testaments. Now, is that assumed belief somewhat accurate, or does it need some adjustment? Well, that is an interesting question, actually. When we attend a ordination service as Christians, we kind of assume that this is exactly what was happening in the Bible. The way we do it, that that's, that's, has biblical, clear biblical roots. This is not quite correct, Skip. Um, ordination has a long history within Christianity. It has its beginning as seeds in uh, Old Testament and New Testament, but we do things quite differently than it was done in the New Testament, Old Testament. So uh, as as we know ordination today, it has actually very little linkage to the New Testament, Old Testament. This is interesting because most people think that we, we follow a New Testament with this right, but we actually don't. Uh, there are some connections, but not quite exactly. Hmm. Okay, now we share a faith movement, and many of our listeners do, uh, Dr. Yankovic, uh, a conservative Protestant denomination, mm-hmm. the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Yes. And in our faith body, we acknowledge the pastoral call with this uh, practice of ordination. How is it applied in the church, and is it universally accepted? Now, many of our listeners know this, but others might be interested in how it's applied in our faith movement. 
Well, the way I understand this is that it is a community of believers that recognizes the call uh, to ministry. And uh, as a new pastor enters the ministry, he's observed by his leadership. He's observed by the church members and they recognize that he or she, uh, they have a calling to ministry. And as they practice, as they fulfill that calling, uh, at some point, uh, lay, hands will be laid upon that particular person to affirm the call to ministry. And I think this is the uh, important thing uh, that ordination does not introduce somebody to ministry. Ordination simply should be, biblically speaking, a affirm an affirmation of the call that the pastor has. And that's just about it. And that the church essentially blesses that person to uh, continue the ministry. And they say, yes, this particular person, a male or female, they have a calling to ministry and we're acknowledging it. Unfortunately, sometimes uh, we have used it, um, used ordination as a as a uh, promotion of sorts, as a reward of of sorts, and I don't think this is a proper biblical use of ordination. Mm-hmm. Now you use two helpful words: uh, affirm, and I think acknowledge. Correct. Uh, yeah. So we. We experience this process of the church body saying, we wish to affirm that you are serving and your gifts being used in response to the calling of God. And Correct. And observe, acknowledge, affirm that. Now, you also describe this laying on of hands, which is kind of an interesting uh, process uh, is spoken of in the Bible, but sometimes don't. It, it's not really limited to this setting aside, is it? In that, fact, that is I, correct. Yeah, and I want I want to go back and correct my use of the term setting aside. It's not limited to that affirming, is it? Go ahead, Dorian. Uh, that is correct. I mean, so let me just introduce this topic. Is that, in my opinion, ordination and laying on of hands are two separate things that were joined together by the end of the uh, second century, especially in the third century of uh, Christian history. But originally in the Bible, we only see laying on of hands. And laying on of hands, uh, today we limit it mostly to uh, ordination of pastors and church leaders. Uh, but in Old and New Testament, laying on of hands was used to, in variety of uh, circumstances. Uh, in Old Testament, it was used to bless people. Uh, it was used to appoint leaders, like Moses lays hands on uh, Joshua and he becomes a leader of the nation. Uh, laying on of hands was used to pass on sins onto a sacrificial animal. So we see variety of ways in which uh, laying on of hands was used in Old Testament. Same with the New Testament. You've got healing, blessing, um, passing on the Holy Spirit. Only, and, and this, from my count, there are about 26 times that laying on of hands is mentioned in the New Testament. Only two times is used to uh, appoint Christian leaders. And we kind of reversed that a little bit. Now we just mostly 
primarily use uh, laying on of hands upon Christian leaders to uh, to ordain them. But laying on of hands was just a regular practice in New Testament. The Christians used it all the time for a variety of reasons. That does uh, impact uh, how we position the whole process of ordination. Um, That's correct. Now, I was interested in one of your uh, publications researching this topic. You discovered in the writings of uh, Christian authors from the second century onward the assertion that the church could not exist without a separate class of individuals distinguished from other believers by the right of ordination. And I kind of revealed in that term setting aside kind of the assumed context of ordination. But what you discovered about how that began uh, is interesting. Can you I explain, please, what uh, you discovered in that area? Sure, absolutely. You know, when you look into the Bible, uh, to the New Testament, you'll discover that leadership in the church is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's on equal basis with any other gift. Uh, so leaders are people who are uh, gifted in a very specific way. And uh, if you have that gift of leadership, you need to exercise it. Just as if you have, as uh, Paul uh, said in Romans 12, we all have different gifts, you know, and in Ephesians 4, of course. And we need to use those gifts. And Jesus says the same thing. So uh, the gift of leadership, ministerial leadership or administrative leadership is just one of the gifts of the Spirit on par with gift of helps or gift of um, just encouragement and other gifts that, that we are given as a community of Christ. Uh, that has changed actually significantly in the second century after the post-apostolic period, the gift of leadership in the church, the ministry gift, was significantly elevated. Um, you know, when when the apostles died, the church experienced a lot of difficulties. There were heresies, there were persecutions. Uh, Christians were spread around the Roman Empire, and they really, they really needed some unifying. A situation, something that would unify them. And those early Christian leaders, post-apostolic Christian leaders, they view um, the leadership as that aspect that will unify the church. And they put a lot of authority in the hands of bishops, as, as the leaders were known. They were elevated, be, this gift of leadership was elevated beyond any other gift. And that's how they understood that unity will be protected. If we centralize authority in the hands of an elite, then the people would be able to be united. And eventually, all other qualities, other qualities were added to the gift of leadership. Um, and, and basically, by the beginning of fourth century, it was impossible to have a church without a group of leaders that would hold a tight control over the doctrine, over the unity of the church, and so on. Uh, so the belief came by the fourth century. People were teaching, like one of those people was Jerome. He would say a community cannot possibly exist without 
leaders like bishops and of course uh, to add to this and we may talk about this later on a little bit a special gifting was uh, the people believe that leaders receive a special gifting that did not exist in the new testament time uh, that they would be able to do special things in church that no other people can do uh, like conduct baptisms like uh, conduct the lord's supper or communion services in order for those two rights to be valid or to have a special effect uh, only ordained ministry was able to administer those things so without the leadership without those ordained people the church could not possibly exist and uh, in my opinion this was departure from the new testament teachings and as a church today we need to return to new testament and not look into the history and those developments that occurred later after in the post-apostolic period so along the way we moved from recognizing the giftedness of everyone for ministry and affirming a person's ministry and with prayer and laying on of hands correct asking for blessing we move to this separation of leaders from the membership and uh, created a uh, separate well, class yeah, setting apart. Now, I I, I purposely uh, kind of have held off and saying define for us ordination because <laughs> I was really interested to discover that the origin of the word is less biblical and more secular. Tell us, tell us where does the term ordination come from? What is its role? Uh, this, is, this is a fascinating story that I discovered when I was doing my research that I didn't know before. Like we use the word ordination like, like it's a biblical word and, and it, we're just happy to use it and we never think about the origin. But actually the word ordination comes from Latin ordinatio and ordinatio comes from another word, order. Okay, so you've got order, you've mm -hmm. got different classes of individuals, they are termed as orders, and if you want to change, or if somebody wants you to change the uh, order, they use the uh, word ordinatio, which was a specific initiation type of uh, ritual, and it uh, goes back to Roman Empire, definitely goes back before Jesus Christ, about two centuries, um, within the Roman Empire, there were different orders, different groups of people. So we would have a order, order senatorum, which was the order of senators, the highest class. We've got order of knights, uh, and we, or, or order equites, or order pleborum, uh, which just basically plebs, regular people. And generally, people were born into those orders, but sometimes. Uh, if somebody in the lower order did something very special, like in uh, Order Equitas, the Knights Orders, they did something special service to the Empire, the Emperor could decide to ordain that person for a higher service. They could ordain them as a senator, uh, they could ordain them as a leader, governor of a province. Uh, so that term was wildly used in the Roman Empire long before Christianity came on the scene to elevate people to higher position. It was usually going up and giving people more authority and more power. Uh, eventually that term entered Christian vocabulary, but that this did not happen until the end of the second century. But that the root of the term 
ordination is definitely in uh, in the Roman Empire. So we borrowed this term, brought it into the church from the Roman Empire. That is correct, and it was done by church thinker by the name Tertullian. He's the first one among Christian thinkers to actually use this term and refer this term to initiation of the bishops in the church. And you described that it became enticing because it established correct. some ecclesiological order? Uh, correct. It was uh, basically when people were ordained. You see, what happens is by the time when Tertullian in the, the end of second century used this term, you already have a classes of the society work or classes within Christianity. Um, the bishop's office was elevated beyond what New Testament would allow uh, by earlier thinkers like Ignatius and Irenaeus before Tertullian. And it was kind of like, like I already said, it was the protection of the unity of the church that they needed to elevate the episcopal office um, highly. And then Tertullian is looking around and seeing, oh, okay, okay, let me just tell you briefly who Tertullian was. Uh, Tertullian was a Christian apologist who tried to defend Christianity against attacks of uh, pagan Romans. And in his defense, he would say, we are just normal people. We're like you. We even have orders within, the, uh, within our church. And there's an order of bishops, an order of regular people. And, and we use ordination to elevate bishops into higher position and he's the first one to use the term ordination or ordinatio to designate the elevation of a person to a higher position in the church higher spiritual position in the church and those were the bishops so so that's how ordinatio got into christianity and uh, you know it brought with itself uh, quite a baggage uh, when Tertullian brought this term into Christianity, he knew, exactly knew what he was doing um, because already the term was loaded outside of Christianity. So he says, we just have this ordination when we elevate our leaders to higher positions. And it, it, this was done to a huge detriment of uh, biblical understanding of what leadership really is. I also was interested... Uh... Uh, Doris, in your research into the writings of Ignatius and yes, uh, and help me, Irenaeus. Uh, Irenaeus. Oh, different people yeah. say different things. <laughs> I I would different. be embarrassed to say it wrong. Yeah. No, I tell say us, I say Irenaeus. Tell us and more I, about what you found from that. I I may be wrong too. Well, <laughs> uh, there are three Christian thinkers or four, I should say, or maybe even five, <laughs> who mm -hmm. really laid foundation for, for the way modern Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic Church operates today. Uh, the names are Ignatius, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Cyprian, and Augustine. I mean, if you know what those people uh, did, what they, what they introduced successively, successive introduction, this is the chronological order of their lives, as they entered the Christian scene. So first Ignatius. Ignatius was a man dedicated to the unity of the church and he was the one who believed that if we want to have a unity in the church, we have to have a bishop who is tightly controlling the unity. 
in the church. And he's the, fir the first one to introduce certain teachings into Christianity um, that are not existing in the New Testament. So he introduced, he elevates the position of the bishop. He's, he's the first one to say that without bishop, the church cannot exist. exist. He says the church needs to be obedient to its bishop, that bishop has a final say in the matter of doctrines. Bishop is the only celebrant of the Lord's Supper, Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, this is very early because Ignatius is dated to early second century. So it's fascinating to see in his writings this departure from the New Testament, the radical, radical, excuse me, departure from the New Testament. Uh, so, and and the most important thing that he introduces is so-called trifold ministry. Uh, that means he's the first one to introduce uh, three um, strata in ministry. The first one is bishops, then there are presbyters, and then there are deacons. In the New Testament, at best, we can see that deacons and the bishops or overseers, he actually makes a distinction. He's the first one to make a distinction between bishops and presbyters. Uh, so uh, each bishop is a presbyter, but not all bishops are the presbyters. And they are, they are structured in a hierarchical way. Uh, the bishop is number one in hierarchy, then comes the elder or presbyter, and then comes the deacon. And each of them receive a a different laying on of hands, although this did, did, does not become evident until a little bit later, until uh, the end of second century. So this is the this is Ignatius. Then Irenaeus comes, and he introduces um, other concepts like apostolic succession. He borrows this from Gnosticism, that apostolic succession essentially teaches that there are successive. Um, lists of teachers who received a teaching from previous teachers and they are linked through the laying on of hands. So uh, apostolic succession is a very important right within the Roman, a very important belief, a doctrine within the Roman Catholic Church right now. It's a foundational doctrine. That's what uh, the church would not exist, in my opinion, without the teaching of apostolic succession. Uh, so the teaching essentially teaches that current pope is linked via uh, uh, the right of ordination, the laying on of hands, or it's called in a technical term episcopal consecration. It goes, uh, current pope is linked to, to Peter, who was the first bishop as the Catholic Church teaches, which is of course, of course historically not verified. Uh, but that's the belief. So uh, it is believed that Peter ordained the bishops in in the Church of Rome, and the bishop of Church of next bishop uh, of Rome ordained another bishop, and another bishop, another bishop, another bishop. Until today, we have current uh, Pope Francis ordained in within the apostolic succession. So, with the episcopal consecration or ordination, uh, the authority episcopal authority given by Peter to each successive bishop of Rome is given to current bishop of Rome. So that goes back to Irenaeus. This is go, goes back mm. to the middle to later second century. And this is very early teaching. With the teaching of apostolic succession, um, Irenaeus introduces another teaching uh, that every bishop with the laying of hands receives uh, a gift, charisma veritatis certum. And mm. that that is a gift of truth, gift of be, being able to discern the truth from error. 
So every bishop receives that gift and that of course lays, laid the foundation for teaching of the infallibility of the bishops later on. It's not just the Pope who is infallible, but all of the bishops are in a college of bishops, they are infallible. And uh, so Irenaeus taught that uh, each bishop receives that gift. And then comes Tertullian, we talked about him a little bit, and he believes that there is a separation between bishops and ordained individuals and everybody else. And he, he basically teaches about two classes within, the, uh, within Christianity. And ever since then, we've got two classes of people, those ordained and those not ordained, clergy and laity. In fact, this is interesting, Skip. Uh, he is the first thinker to introduce those terms uh, into Christianity, Cl uh, clericos and laicos clergy oh. and laity and mm. today when we call ourselves clergy it does not go into the bible it goes back to uh, tertullian so each time i see a pastor having a clergy sticker on the car i kind of laugh to mm. myself that this is really non-biblical it goes back right to uh, yeah. to tertullian he's the first one to introduce those terms from latin of course uh-huh now you uh you have discovered uh, in your research uh, that early transition, but you also uh, have unfolded for us. Uh, I I remember from Augustine some of the work that you found from his writing and others. This matter of the Catholic priest receiving a special permanent seal Correct. on his soul, and, and somehow. Somehow I said to myself, oh my goodness, we, when we say a person is set aside for ministry, that could, be, that could come awfully close to what we feel about ordination in the Adventist church. Talk to us a little bit about that uh, sacramental yes. preparation, uh, the seal upon okay. the soul. In order to talk about this, I need to mention another Christian thinker that I have already uh, referred to. He comes after Tertullian. He was actually Tertullian's uh, disciple. His name is Cyprian. And Cyprian is very important because he develops a concept of what we know today uh, as sacramental efficacy. Uh, that means that the sacraments um, and by that stage, they've got a lot of sacraments, only later they, def they limit the number of sacraments to the seven, and I'll talk to you about this in a moment, uh, because it's important uh, to talk about the ceiling uh, that, that we'll, we'll refer to. But sacramental efficacy, uh, a concept developed by Cyprian, is essentially uh, the fact that what the priest does with the baptism and Lord's Supper and other rites carries a salvific uh, power that means when you participate in the lord's supper or baptism uh, salvation is kind of making made closer to you and only the ordained priest has the power to do that uh, it cannot happen with anybody else although under special circumstances or baptism can but generally speaking within christianity only ordained priests can f perform uh, the rite of baptism and uh, baptism and uh, the Lord's Supper. So uh, Tertullian develops this idea that you have to you have ordained persons. Of course, he does it within the historical cons, uh, circumstances. There was a crisis in the church, and he develops those ideas to help the church. So you have to have ordained priests to do that. 
uh, otherwise baptism is invalid and the Lord's Supper is invalid. And he develops this concept in mm. his writings uh, known as um, extra ecclesiam nulla salus, which means outside of the church there is no salvation. This is the concept strictly tied to this uh, sacramental efficacy um, that I just spoke about. Only within the church you can receive salvation through baptism, through the Lord's Supper and other sacraments. So, uh, so this is Cyprian. And after Cyprian, a little bit later, uh, comes Augustine. And Augustine, by, by that stage, we slowly coming together to the underst uh, to definition of what sacrament is. That sacrament is that mystery through which God actually uh, speaks to the soul of the people and uh, pours in grace into people's hearts. Today, Catholic Church has seven sacraments, but during the time of Augustine, there were only just about 40 of them, 40 different rites that were uh, considered as sacraments. I'm not sure about the number, the exact number. But uh, Lord's Supper and uh, baptism, primarily baptism, was the most important, and ordination. Uh, at that stage. So a belief developed uh, during that time and Augustine was one of the instrumental uh, thinkers that allowed for that belief to develop that when ordination uh, happens or when the hands are laid upon a people, upon people, a special seal is introduced or placed on the heart of the recipient that his uh, soul becomes indelibly different. You cannot delete uh, the seal from the soul of the recipient. And that seal is granted to only three sacraments can actually grant that seal. It is baptism, it is confirmation and ordination. So we're speaking about ordination. So what happens to a soul of the recipient? Suddenly he becomes completely changed. He's a different person. Um, inside of him that his soul essentially he's a different person and you cannot delete this you can defrog the priest but he still has that seal we could say once sealed always sealed and and you carry this ordination seal with you for the rest of your life it cannot be deleted you can leave the catholic church and that seal becomes dormant but when you re-enter catholic church suddenly you have that seal again and what is the purpose of that sealing the purpose is that when a priest conducts baptism or conducts the lord's supper and particularly with reference to the lord's supper he through his sealing he can actually transform the elements the wine and the bread into a real body and blood of christ so when he raises the cup and if he raises the host which is the bread sudden and there is a prayer of blessing at that very moment those elements become the real blood and body of Christ. So when the believers participate in the Lord's Supper, and the technical term for this is transubstantiation, the change of substance. So you you actually, bread is still bread, you can still see it, you can still taste it, wine is still wine, it's still liquid that, and it's still red, but the substance, something that is beneath all of that, and of course, of course this idea goes back to Greek philosophy, uh, the substance beneath that is the real blood and body of Christ. So when believers are participating, they're receiving the benefit of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. So like 
Jesus was not sacrificed, we could say, once and for all, but the sacrifice is continue, continuing within the Catholic Church. That's why it is called Eucharistic sacrifice. And only ordained priest can actually do this. If you are an unordained person, this is not going to happen. It is actually blasphemous to do that. Only ordained priest can make the transformation. So for the life of the believers, for the salvation of the believers, the ordination is absolutely essential. Uh, the church, and once again, it ties into that concept that we talked earlier before. The church cannot exist without ordained individual. And this is with the reference of the Catholic Church and those churches that follow the Catholic um, model of the church, like Eastern Orthodoxy and other Catholic churches. Mm -hmm. So ordination became attached to a person. We Correct. could almost say it affected the ontology, the actual Correct. The essence of, of the person. Correct. Instead of the ministry task. Now, Correct. You and I share, as many of our listeners would share, a root context in a faith movement, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. How did early Adventists regard ordination? As, as we endeavored to focus on the Bible and the Bible alone, did we find objection, uh, or did we just not yes. address this? Yes, we, we have addressed it to some extent. What we have to understand is that Adventism is part of the greater Protestant movement. And, and you know, Protestantism, when it came on the scene in the 16th century, it rejected a lot of Catholic beliefs, but, but also adopted a lot of Catholic beliefs. Like Luther, Calvin and Zwingli adopted this, uh, this idea of ordination, ordination of clergy, and, and they endowed it a special meaning. They departed just a little bit from it, but you know, they did not um, go all the way. You know, uh, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, they did not go all the way back into the scripture. And we see Protestantism adopting a lot of practices from Catholicism. And that happened with the issue of ordination. Um, when early Adventists came on the scene, they were not Adventists yet. Many of our founders um, came from the little known movement christian movement called christian connection mm -hmm. and the whole whole idea of christian connection was to return to the scripture return to the scripture uh, so they tried to really return to the scripture in a variety of ways and one of those ways was of course uh, the ministry in the church uh, they have not quite succeeded but they attempted at least uh, you know uh, our some of our founders like joseph bates and uh, james white uh, were ordained as pastors or as ministers in Christian Connection. They were never ordained in Adventist Church. They carried their ordination, so to speak. So, uh, but uh, the earliest Adventist Church was marked by this desire to move from any form of organization. Uh, they believed that the Millerite movement was rejected by organized religion. And they decided that we don't want to have anything to do with organized religion. In fact, organization is from the devil. Um, so the earliest Adventists, they did not want to organize themselves, they did not want to have ordained ministry uh, at all whatsoever. They were not interested, they were just interested in preaching of the gospel. Of course, they believed in shut door theory, which means only Millerite Adventists could be saved and go to heaven, and only those people could receive the message, then they moved away from this. But when they began to proclaim the gospel message, the Advent message, in the 
late 40, 1840s and early 1850s, they realized they need to have some kind of organization. There were too many uh, false preachers going around and teaching all kinds of stuff around the place and fleecing the church members. So uh, early pioneers, uh, early founders, Joseph Bates, James and Ellen White decided to issue credentials, so to speak, a little card for the pastor that he is actually the genuine article. And with that card, they blessed the person. You know, they just said, okay, we're laying on our hands like, like it's in the Bible. We're setting you apart because setting apart is a biblical teaching for this particular ministry. And you go and preach. And if somebody ever asks you, where do you come from? You can show the card. You come from James Allen White and Joseph Bates. So they know you are genuine article. So this credentials with the blessing became kind of a, a norm within our church, but it was strictly tied to the function, to fulfillment of a specific function. It was definitely not sacramental, definitely did not affect your soul as in Catholic uh, understanding. It was just like, go and do your job, preach the gospel, and we'll just lay on hands and bless you. And mm -hmm. uh, later on, Ellen White wrote that uh, when she wrote about uh, the process of ordination or laying on of hands that in history developed unwarranted importance and for me this mm -hmm. is very important you know unwarranted mm -hmm. importance so we we begin to establish uh, the church the church essentially uh, started ascribing unwarranted importance to the right of ordination throughout history and we as adventists we're not supposed to do that unfortunately we did and mm -hmm. and with time we organize ourselves more and more and more and uh, today we have big discussions on ordination of uh, who should be ordained and qualifications for ordinations all this kind of stuff we've got whole policy about ordination and so on where this is just a simple blessing um, that we bestow upon those who have gift of leadership so we kind of move towards more sacramental view, even though we don't ascribe a sacramental value to the right uh, in the minds of many people it is. And this is yes. unfortunate, you know. Uh, so, for example, uh, only ordained pastors and ordained leaders can do baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I don't think it's necessarily bad, but originally we established this for the sake of church order. But in many places of the world, uh, we ascribe a sacramental meaning to those terms only ordained pastor can do that you know uh, because it will not be valued or it will not have the same value uh, or it will be useless if a non-ordained person um, does it so if a non-ordained pastor baptizes someone that that is basically a bad thing because the person has to be rebaptized you know so so i think we need to go back to the bible and go back to spiritual gifting of the people uh, and and mm. when we do that, we'll stop discussing ordination as the most important thing in our church, you know. Yes, yeah. Well, the whole uh, concept uh, leads us down uh, roads of argument that seem to suggest we have the ecclesiology gone awry, a Roman Catholic idea of it. <laughs> Correct. So in the, uh, our ideas regard... Uh, Regarding ordination, our approach to ordination, the Adventist Church could uh, rest uh, in biblical authority rather yes. than the tradition of uh, the universal Correct. church. I, I, 
I even went as much as hoping that we could change the term, that we'll move away from ordination to just laying on of hands and setting yeah. people as, aside for task of ministry, and not just ministry in the church, but other tasks, I believe, in, in the church. Mm -hmm. We should lay hands on people who teach children who do personal ministries in the churches, who, who mm -hmm. we do, we do lay hands on deacons and elders, but I think we should, we should just spread it around in my opinion and kind of de-emphasize uh, this uh, ordination in our churches and, and just do it for people who perform various uh, functions based on their spiritual gifting. The scripture teaches that every disciple of Christ is gifted and called for ministry and that That's the correct. body can affirm and pray for that and that the is correct. of hands is part of that. That's well, right. Well, Darius, thank you so much for joining us today. A great pleasure. The Problem of Ordination, Lessons from Early Christian History. Our guest has been Dr. Darius Yankovic. This is Skip Bell. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep thinking, keep believing.